Good morning, church. I don't know what y'all had for breakfast this morning, but we had pancakes and bacon up in the youth room. It was delicious. On a totally unrelated note, I'm taking applications for those that want to serve in student ministry. So if you're interested, um, I'm glad to be here with you this morning teaching. I don't get to come up here very often, and I enjoy the opportunity. Uh, and so when Landon asked me, I was, I was pretty excited until I started studying the passage. Y'all, James is pretty convicting, huh? Um, man, it's good stuff. I have, I have really enjoyed this series. And, and one r- reason I've enjoyed it is because it has been convicting for me in my personal life. And I'm just going to be honest and say that I hope that it's been convicting for you as well. Because that's, that's kind of the point of James. Landon's been talking about how one of the purposes of James is to help Christians grow in maturity of faith. And that can't really happen unless we face conviction. And being convicted by the Holy Spirit about our, how we are living our lives and being faced with the truth of Scripture, it forces us to choose between maintaining our current lifestyle or choosing to look more like Christ. And this is, this is not an insignificant struggle. Growing in maturity of faith is taxing. It's difficult. But as James illustrates pretty clearly throughout his, his book, Growing in maturity is, is not really a choice for us as Christians. It's expected of us. And today's passage is, is no exception to that. Last week, Landon preached on James 4, 1 to 12. And in that lesson, we learned that worldliness is really more of a, a heart condition than it is uh, an activity, a, a place, or a thing. And if we're going to commit ourselves to living for the Lord, then what is abundantly more important than any external factor is the condition of our heart. And if our hearts are seeking his glory above all else. And I think that that idea, talked about last week, is very clearly demonstrated in the passage we're going to talk about this morning. Our passage this morning is James 4, 13 to 17. It's short. But it's pretty packed full of some really good stuff. And this passage largely deals with our tendency to leave God out of our daily lives. Which brings me to the big idea. The big idea for today's passage is this. God expects, God's expectations for us as his people should be our guide in everyday life. Which, as we talked about last week, is a heart condition. Because until we can see God for who he really is, as holy and righteous, and until we can see us for who we really are, as ignorant and frail and dependent, then following God in everyday life is virtually impossible. 
which is the aim of this passage, to show us who he is and who we are and why as his people he must guide us in everyday life. But before we jump too far into the lesson, I want to stop. I want us to read the passage together and then pray. So read with me in James 4, starting in verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Let's pray. God, we love you. God, we love your word. We are thankful that we have your revealed word to us. God, we thank you that we have Sundays, that we can come together as your people and study your word. I pray that you you reveal your word clearly to us this morning. Help us to understand your will for our lives. That it may change our hearts to seek you in everything we do, every day, every decision. For your glory, because you are worthy of our future. God, thank you for this time together as your people. I I pray that you bless it. And I ask that we leave here looking more like you than when we got here. It's your name we pray. Amen. As a young man, I, you, you can see me in all my youthful wisdom up there, huh? Uh, as a young man, I went every summer, I would go to a place down south called Paisano Baptist Encampment. Some of you are probably familiar with it. Most of you probably never heard of it. It's a small Baptist encampment down south between Alpine and Marfa. Um, I grew up at First Baptist Church in Midland, and every summer they would take a team of youth to Paisano, which is a family camp, and then the youth from First Baptist would uh, lead a day camp for all the kids at Paisano. And one year, some friends and I, in all of our youthful wisdom, decided that we were going to go climb this rock formation. If you've been to Paisano, you know that this is called Paisano Peak. And our plan was that we were going to leave after lunch one day, because our, our day camp was only in the morning, we had our afternoons free to do whatever we wanted, which was wise. But our plan was, <laughs> our plan was that we would leave after lunch, we would walk to Paisano Peak, we would go up one side, across the top, down the other side, and we would walk back to campus and be back in time for dinner. Easy. <laughs> uh, and I don't know who was leading us. It wasn't me. But I also wasn't paying attention to say anything. So where we, we did not end up on the end like we planned on, we ended up right in the center when we got there. But we were there. We didn't want to walk all the way around to the, to the end where the slope looks a little bit easier. Uh, and so we just said, you know what, we're here. Let's do it. We can do this. And we start going up. And you can see where I've circled there. There's a little bowl with a rock face. And we found ourselves right in the middle of that. Um, and I remember being on that rock face, looking at the guys above me and some girls below me 
hanging on by fingertips and thinking, I really don't know if we're going to all make it up the side of this mountain. It was pretty scary. Um, And some of the guys at the top got over the top and they laid down and they started pulling us up over the edge. And as I'm telling this story, I'm realizing that my mom is here and I don't think she's ever heard that story before. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm sorry, mom. Uh, (laughs) But we all made it. We made it up to the top. We made it down one of the sides that's a little bit easier. And we even made it back in time for dinner. So it was a good day. But I tell you that story to tell you this. We have such a tendency to make what seem like little insignificant decisions. To us, that journey was not a big deal. Oh, yeah, we'll just go climb by Santa Peak and come back. And some, some of those decisions are insignificant. They, they don't really amount to much, but some of them can be very big decisions. And we can get in way over our head before we ever know what happened. All because we are too confident in ourselves and in our abilities to handle what seem like everyday situations. And what this passage is doing, especially in the first two verses is it's reminding us what happens when we make plans and decisions based on our own presumptions of our own ability. And there are three factors in this passage that I want, us, I want to highlight and I want us to, to understand and be aware of. The first thing that I want you to see is that presumptuous planning is a result of our ignorance. The example that James gives here is of merchants that are planning to travel to a city and spend a year there and and conduct business and walk away richer because of it. They've presumed in their own ability. First of all, their ability to travel to this other city. Traveling then was not always easy or safe. And they're presuming in their ability to go there and, and conduct business and make a profit. Probably because... They've been successful before and they have no reason to assume otherwise. And this passage is, is often utilized um, to, as wisdom and as guidance for people in the business world that, that God should be involved in your business. And I think that it can be absolutely utilized for that sphere, but I think James had a much broader application in mind when he wrote this. Especially just because we're on the heels of a passage that talks about worldliness and, and our heart condition as it relates to the world. I find it odd to jump from that to a, a passage on business. So I think, I think the example given here is, is just that. It's an example. The application of what he's saying is, is much broader than that. It's something that we can all see in our own lives. Because regardless of our profession, what we do, we are ignorant to tomorrow, what tomorrow holds. We, we can make educated guesses, some of us some really good educated guesses, but it's still a guess. The simple truth is that we don't know the future. 
God does, but we don't. I think it was Augustine that said, a God who didn't know the future wouldn't be God. God knows the future. God is omniscient. We are not. And the fact that we don't know the future just, it can't be denied. Think about the weather, for instance. We have no idea what this next week will hold in the way of weather. Will it be rainy? Will it be in the hundreds? Will it be in the 80s? Will it be windy? It'll probably be windy. But out here in West Texas, we have no idea, especially out here. Am I right? And if we don't even know what tomorrow holds in the way of weather, how could we possibly know what it holds in the way of much more important things? We are ignorant to what tomorrow holds. And I believe that our ignorance of the future is meant to humble us. It's meant to humble us. If we know, if we were to be given some foreknowledge about a future success in our lives, a future achievement, we would almost be unbearable. Because we would, we would know that this is coming and it would make us proud. We'd walk around like a proud peacock, knowing what's coming our way. And then as we're waiting for that to happen, we would get impatient. And in our impatience, we would turn from a proud peacock to an entitled toddler. And we would be unbearable just because we know of some future excess or achievement that's coming to us. Our ignorance is meant to humble us. But not only is it meant to humble us, it's to our benefit. It's to our benefit that we don't know the future. It's good that we don't know about future disappointments in our lives. It's good that we don't know about future illness or failure or heartbreak. Those things would consume us. Some of us want to know the future so bad we can't stand it. And we want to know so that we can control it. So that we can, in essence, be God. Of course, we would, we would never say that, that we want to know the future so that we can be God. But isn't that at the root of that desire? But we don't know the future. We are ignorant to what tomorrow holds. And that should humble us. And we should be grateful. Second thing we need to see is that presumptuous planning forgets our frailty. One thing that became pretty clear to me as I was hanging on that, that rock face by my fingertips is that I am not as invincible as I once thought I was in my younger days. As many young men do. And that my life, apart from the grace of God, is brief and it's fragile. And that's the case for most people who have had a near-death experience. Facing death helps us see how feeble we really are. And it highlights our ignorance of what tomorrow holds. We have no idea when God will call us home. We don't know. But in spite of that, we make such big plans for our lives, for our future, without ever consulting God. Where to go to college? 
what field to find a career in, where to live, raise families. And what we forget is in the, in the vast expanse of human history, our lives are nothing but a mist. I wanted to put a timeline on the screen from Eden, from creation to now. And I wanted to mark on there where, where my life would be. But the line would be so small that you couldn't even see it. What are our lives apart from God? What are our plans apart from God? The answer is nothing. A mist. Here today, gone tomorrow. Until we understand the brevity and the frailty of our lives apart from God, we can never truly be able to live for him. The third thing is that presumptuous planning ignores our dependence on God. It ignores our dependence on God. Verse 15 is is the turn of the passage where it turns from an example of disobedience to a call for obedience. And for those of us that are believers, when we come face to face with the frailty of life, those situations open our eyes to our dependence on God. Not only for from big issue to big issue, which seem to be some of the only times that we really even consult him, but just, just for, for tomorrow, just for our next breath. And when we live day to day, boasting in our arrogance, in what we can accomplish on our own power, as verse 16 says, we forget how much we need him just to simply sustain our life. Like, like these other verses talk about. Colossians 1.17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Or Job 12.10, in his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Or Acts 17.25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. We need him. We need him. Not just from time to time when things seem to be out of our control and what we can handle, but day to day, moment to moment, in the seemingly insignificant things. This passage, just like the one last week, is after a heart change. A heart change that puts God front and center of every decision we make, every single day, intentionally seeking his will and his glory in every aspect of our lives. Now this call is not a call to passive fatalism. I'm not saying to not make plans for the future. I'm not saying to sit back and say, whatever happens, happens. 
That's not the point. I'm not saying don't make plans for, this, for the future. Scripture very clearly all throughout tells us to make plans for the future. What, I, what I'm saying and what James is saying is that in our planning, the root of that planning doesn't need to be in our own power and what we presume we can do. But it must stem from a heart that seeks God's glory above all else. Because he alone is worthy of glory. Because he alone is worthy of our future. And I think verse 15 is a pretty clear indication of that. That James is not calling us to this heart of passive fatalism. He didn't say, don't make plans at all because it doesn't really matter. Whatever's going to happen is going to happen no matter whether you plan or not. That's not what he said. He says, instead you should say, if the Lord wills, I will live and do this or that. Now this is obviously telling us, it's not telling us to just sit back and let it be. But at the same time, this is not also an appeal or a call to some mystical magic saying that if we say these words, if the Lord wills, that God will bless everything we do. That's not, that's not how it works. And I want to be clear here that I don't, I don't even think that James is necessarily calling us to utilize this statement in, in normal vocabulary. But that the, the thrust, the point of his argument is what it has been this whole chapter. To have a heart condition that says, if the Lord wills. And that thought needs to invade every part of our planning and every part of our normal life. All of our ordinary, mundane decision-making. This doesn't need to turn into some statement that we just cling to verbally. Because, let's be honest, we have a tendency to trivialize statements like this. I think one of Landon's favorite examples is when we pray before a mealtime and we ask God to bless the food to nourish us. Yes, Lord, please bless this greasy pizza right in front of me with all this cheese to nourish me. What it, The statements can so easily turn into something that we don't even know what we're saying where it came from, or what it means. And I don't think that's what James is after. I'm not saying that James didn't want us to ever vocalize this. I'm sure he did. But that's not the point. That's not what he's getting at. I think the overarching theme of this chapter is to have a heart that submits to the Lord in everything. And I think the first thing that we need to take away First thing that we need to see is um, we should live with a heart that humbly submits all of our plans to the Lord. Because he knows the future and we don't. Because we are frail. Because we are dependent completely on him just to survive. And I know that that this can be somewhat of a vague statement to submit our plans to the Lord. 
and that there's not always clarity with submitting our plans. But look, to live with a heart position of if the Lord wills, it's also not like we are entering into some unknown realm where we have no idea what God wants for our lives. We have his revelation to us, his revelation of himself to us, his revelation of his will to us. We have it. And in his revelation, he's identified things, things that should regulate our actions and our attitudes. So when we say we are going to do something, what we should say is this, I'm going to do this as long as it doesn't violate what God has revealed in his will to me. Because if it is his will for us to be holy, Leviticus 20, 26 and 1 Peter 1, 16, be holy because I am holy. If that is his revealed will for us, then it is not his will for us to be unholy. And no, Scripture doesn't answer every question we have about the future. Especially as it pertains to our personal lives. It doesn't tell us where to go to college, students. It doesn't tell us what field to find a job in. It doesn't tell us where we should live and raise families. But it does have governing practices that should be held to that guide our decision-making process. And I just want to be honest here. It's okay. It's okay if we don't know what to do. Because God's will is not always about what we should do as much as it is about who we should be. It's not as much about what we should do as it is about who we should be. And if we are being who we should be, then what we should do will follow. The second takeaway is that we need to confess our dependence on God. Even when we have been humbled by our frailty, even when we understand our dependence on God just for tomorrow, we are such proud creatures that want to boast in our sin, that if we are not intentional, we will always revert to that default. And we will boast in our arrogance, and we will plan for the future without ever thinking of his will. So as we seek a heart of if the Lord wills, We have to be intentional about confessing our dependence on him. My mentor used to tell me, Scripture always demands a response. It demands a response. You can't read Scripture and walk away indifferent. It doesn't allow that opportunity. It demands a response. And so as we are seeking a heart that says, if the Lord wills, and as we are studying his revealed will to us, We have to respond to that. My mentor also used to tell me, 
If the Bible is how God speaks to us, then prayer is always how we respond to what he has already revealed to us. And so if we study and understand his revealed will, it should be natural for us as believers to understand our dependence on him and then to confess that dependence to him. Y'all, our prayer lives should be marked by a healthy dose of confessing our dependence on God. Not just for big issue to big issue, but just for tomorrow. Just for our next breath. Because without him, what are we? As I wrap up this morning, I want us to understand one more thing about this passage that I think really it it drives the heart of this whole chapter. In the second half of verse 16, James turns the tables on the reader, which James is really good at. And he puts us face to face with some core shaking truth. He basically says, look, It should not only be your goal to have a heart condition that says, if the Lord wills, but now that you have heard the truth and you know that this is what you should be doing and yet you choose to not do it and you keep planning your days in your own presumptuous, arrogant power, that's evil. That's evil. And what he's doing in verse 17 is showing us that our arrogant, presumptuous planning is a sin of omission. And we are just as guilty for a sin of omission as we are for a sin of commission. And just for for clarity's sake, a sin of commission is when we do something God said don't do. When we break a thou shalt not. That's a sin of commission. Like most of the Ten Commandments. A sin of omission is when we neglect to do something that we knew we should have done. Care for the widows and the orphans and the poor. Look with me at Matthew 25. Starting in verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked and sick and in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it for me. And these will go away into eternal punishment for the righteous into eternal life. This is a passage referred to as the the separation of the sheep and the goats. And it is highlighting sins of omission. Sins, uh, things that we neglected to do that we knew we should have done. 
And what James is saying in verse 17 is that for us to know that we should live in this way, seeking the Lord's will in everything we do, and we don't do it, that's just as bad as breaking one of his explicit commands. They're both sin. And we're guilty of both. And if we're going to claim Christ, if we're going to claim Christianity and say that Jesus is our Savior and commit our lives to following him, that means that not only should we seek a heart position that says, if the Lord wills, every single day, in every decision, but it also means that kind of heart is expected of us. And for us to not do it is sin. James has presented us with truth. And that truth demands a response. Will we continue in a sinful, arrogant, presumptuous planning? Or will we seek to have a heart that seeks the Lord's will above all else? Yet even seeking to have a heart that that says, if the Lord wills, is not something that we can do on our own. But isn't it amazing? Isn't it great that we have the Holy Spirit to help us, to guide us in wisdom, to guide us in understanding, to help us seek God's revealed will, to help us understand God's revealed will, and to respond to it? If we're going to respond to this truth rightly, we are dependent on the help of the helper. And that brings us full circle to our ignorance of tomorrow, our frailty of life, and our dependence on God. If we have committed our lives to following him, his expectations for us as his people should be, should be our guide in everyday life. If it's not, then we haven't truly submitted to him as Lord. We haven't fully understood who he is and who we are and how much we desperately need him just to sustain us. If God is not God of everything in our lives, then he is not really God of anything in our lives. We are either all in or all out, and that's what he expects. That's what he calls us to. Here in a second, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to have a time of response. And I pray that you will respond to the truth revealed in this passage. You can do that privately where you are, or you can do that publicly. You can come up front and you can talk to me or Chris. But I pray that you respond. Let's pray.